the concerns that a psychiatrist has in a, treating a patient are in some ways the concerns that a novelist would have in, in constructing a character. That's this, this kind of deep curiosity about where the person comes from and what it is in their life that could have created person who, the, who, who they've become, um, both their strength and, and the things that they're, that they're suffering from. That's physician and author Daniel Mason. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. In some ways, I think Daniel Mason fell into writing accidentally. He had studied biology at Harvard and spent a year in the jungle at the Thai-Myanmar border researching malaria. He then returned to the United States and went to medical school, where he began writing his novel, The Piano Tuner a novel set in the Burmese interior in 1886. The Piano Tuner was published while Mason was still in medical school. It became an international bestseller, was translated into 28 languages, and was adapted for both theater and opera. Not bad for a 26-year-old. Daniel Mason continued these dual careers, delaying his residency to finish a second novel, A Far Place, which was also very well received. But two demanding careers can be tricky, and Daniel Mason's third novel was 14 years in the making. But it is absolutely worth the wait. The Winter Soldier is the story of a doctor's coming of age. It begins in 1915 with Lucius, a 22-year-old medical student. He lives in Vienna with his wealthy, aristocratic family. He's a bit of an outcast until he finds medicine. Although his family sees it as a profession beneath them, Lucius has the aptitude, passion, and curiosity to excel as a doctor. When the First World War begins, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, facing a shortage of doctors, allows medical students to staff field hospitals. Anxious for this practical experience, Lucius joins up and finds himself in a tiny village in the Carpathian Mountains. Lucius was expecting a well-staffed hospital run by experienced doctors who can mentor him. What he finds instead is a semi-demolished church that's been turned into a field hospital. The hospital staff have died of typhus. The only remaining staff person is a nurse, Sister Margareta. And with Margareta as his teacher, Lucius quickly learns the difference between medical books and medical practice, and somewhat more slowly, opens himself up to humility and empathy. It's a strong portrait of a young man learning the cost of modern warfare and the horrific damage it can bring to the human body, as well as the burden of wounds that can't be seen. Author Daniel Mason spoke to me from the studio in Stanford University, where he's a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry. Daniel, I'm curious about what the origin story is for the book. How did the book come about? Uh, there's a this is a long story. I'll make a I'll make a shorter version of this long story because the book from beginning to end it, it took me I think 14 years of thinking and and working on these characters in some form or another. It began as a different story. It began as a story about a doctor in 1920s, a psychiatrist working in an asylum. And I'm a psychiatrist. I was interested in this particular period of psychiatric history. And I knew that any doctor in the 1920s, of course, if I was going to write a backstory for them, need to have some sort of history during the war, some sort of service in the war. And, and so as I began to read 
about medical service in World War I, I came across these stories, which I hadn't known before, of the sorts of responsibilities that medical students were forced to assume without any preparation whatsoever. I had completed medical school, but I hadn't started residency yet. This would have been back around 2006, 2007, and, and imagining what it was like for these students in a similar kind of training that I have to all of a sudden have these kinds of responsibility was an idea that really gripped me. And so all of a sudden, this, this story, which was meant to have a somewhat simple backstory, really became the heart of the book, and, um, and it became just a story of, of a person sort of coming of age in medicine. He comes from an aristocratic family who thought becoming a doctor was a definite step down. Right. So he's on his father's side, they're very old aristocrats. They trace their roots back in Poland for millennia and are sort of sleepy traditionalists. His father's in the cavalry, injured in, a, in an early war with a, uh, has a musket ball in his hip and essentially retired then and spent the rest of his life in his garrison, um, singing cavalry songs and studying military history. His mother's a bit different. She is also of the aristocracy, um, but she's a much more modern person, kind of proto-capitalist, very aggressive, who recognizes that Lucius's father owns these estates, um, and the states control mines, and that she can make an awful lot of money by ramping up production, um, especially once the war starts. His mother is, you know, she's not in the book a lot, but boy, she casts a shadow on this book. And what, my note was like, what a superbly cold creation she is. <laughs> Thanks. She was a lot of fun to write. She I was, bet she, she was. was. My, she was one of my favorite characters to write. That line Just, she had when she's trying to get Lucius married and she's she'll find the proper girl, i.e. rich girl for him. And it's like, I will provide the menu. You may choose the dish. Right, oh. right, right, right. And, and I think that, right, she refers even at one point to the marriage market as one in which the supply of, of men because of the war is nothing compared to the demand because of the number of men who have died. So she, she even sees the marriage as a, kind of, as a kind of marketplace. She's quite amazing. What a character. Thank you. And World War I, I really would like you to talk about the research you did for this because it's a war, I think, that just casts its shadow on the 20th century. And it's just this absurd, horrific war that swept away three different dynasties and is fought with both 19th and 20th century attitudes and weapons. It's so incongruous every step of the way. That incongruity is one of the aspects of the war that really drew me to writing about it. Mm. I didn't go into it, like I mentioned, thinking that I want to write a, a, nor a war novel. One thing that drew me to the war, though, and made me want to write more about the war as I was writing, wanting it to play a stronger role in the book, was exactly this transition that it offers between more traditional forms of warfare and more modern mechanized warfare. And uh, as I'm writing and as my attention is primarily on this character and this character's development, I began to feel that in thinking of the war, I was also seeing a kind of representation of who he was because he in many ways is composed of these two different worlds. He's grown up reading the kinds of stories that a little boy in the early 20th century would have read, stories about knights on horseback and lancers and cavalry charges. And he's heard a lot of these stories from his father. That's, that's what war is in his imagination. 
And yet the war that he enters is this horrific, industrialized, brute modern war. And so within him, this kind of incongruity plays itself out, just like it's playing itself out on the battlefield. So at one point in the book, he stumbles into a battle in which Cossack horsemen um, are racing with their sabers into machine gun fire, which would be not an uncommon sort of conflict. And I just loved the idea that this could be occurring on the battlefield in front of him, but at the same time, this is occurring internally as his imagination of what the war's life is like is becoming replaced by his realization of what it's become. His romantic notion about medicine is also replaced by what, in fact, it is and what he practices in a field hospital. Right, right. He has entirely book learning uh, when he heads out into the to the front, and I mean, this is one of the one of the universals of medicine. As different as his education was then, and the kinds of circumstances that he was in ser- that he was serving in were like then, it is still the same in many ways today that one one learns in the books, and and one of the great sort of adaptations one makes as one begins to practice is the realization that the kinds of illnesses that people experience are very different from those that are described in the textbooks. And it's necessary to learn about the ones in the textbook, but life's far messier. And of course, he has to learn this in a very, very dramatic sense. Um, The moment that he arrives, like the night that he arrives at the hospital, there's a group of soldiers who are brought in by ambulance from the snow, injured, uh, and almost instantly he realizes how the kind of book learning that he had is not going to serve him. His view of medicine is both romantic but also detached in a way. And it's Margareta, who's the field nurse and the only other medical staff of the hospital, who actually teaches him not just about medicine and how to practice in the real world, but also empathy. Mm -hmm. But she's also not sentimental at all. Right, right. She, She doesn't have space to be sentimental. Um, One of the mysteries of the book is who she is and where she comes from, and I don't want to give it away, but she's probably grown up in a pretty rough place where the the circumstances of life and death are apparent from a very early age, and that kind of sentimentality is not available, is not possible. But at the same time, her way of interacting with the men is very different than, than his way. And early on, when he's a medical student, he's a reasonably shallow person. I don't mean that to to put him down. I think it's probably developmentally normal for a young man of about 20 who's very scientifically minded, who's interested in the anatomy and in the biology of disease, to not really think about the people who have the disease. And so in the beginning, you know, there's a, there's a line in the, in the book about how certain people would say to him that it's, that it's kind that he would go into this profession. But I write that um, kindness doesn't interest him. Disease interests him. And so part of what he learns from her is, is that kind of kindness. Yeah, you're also really, really clear about the conditions in the hospitals there with, with rats and lice and maggots and the stink. And I'm curious about the kind of research that you did about the war, about the hospitals, about medicine. And the medicine that you learned has to be different from the medicine they practiced. And and that was very hard. I I think that writing about the medicine at the time was one of the harder parts of the book because there's always this question of how would a person have first been practicing? That was maybe a little bit more straightforward. What kind of medicines were available? But even more than that, 
how would they understand disease? What would they expect? How would they approach mortality? I mean, it's very different now. Medicine's so effective now that in many ways, in not every situation, of course, medicine recognizes that certain times a person can't be saved. But in many forms of modern medicine, there's, there's almost no tolerance for illness, no, to- no tolerance for death. Whereas medicine at that time, that was an understood outcome. You know, people talk about how the, the doctor at the time was a great job at describing what was going on, but was terrible at treating it. And so trying to think of somebody who lives and thinks and is from that environment was hard. It was, it was even harder than trying to um, learn what kind of diseases they had and what kind of medicines they would use to treat them. I relied mostly on medical manuals at the time, and so um, both sides of the war issued books to doctors on the front line and medics telling them what they were going to encounter on the front and, and how they were going to, to cure the problems that they, that they encountered. And so that provided me with um, material to, to work with and to imagine. And the books also really suggested what doctors could and couldn't do. And so one of the I think fascinating but horrifying aspects of reading them is that one would find long, long chapters about how to get rid of lice from clothing. But then you get to the part of the manual in which they would talk about, for example, abdominal surgery. I actually put this in the book because it's so striking. And there would be these terse comments that, for the most part, people feel that abdominal surgery shouldn't be done because the mortality rates were so high. I wonder where Margareto came from, because she is really a great, great character. I was so taken with her and her strength and her self-sufficiency and just her her bossiness. <laughs> and she just seemed incredibly real to me. Well, that's great. I mean, I think like, like Lucius's mother, she was also a lot of fun to write. Like when there were moments that I knew I'd be able to to write some scenes with her. I was always happier. In part, I, I love the language that she uses. She's she's very forceful. I did not expect her to be a big character in the book. So when I first imagined this book, I imagined Lucius showing up at this hospital and meeting this nurse, and and um, he was going to know this nurse for a little while, and then he was going to go back to Vienna. But then this relationship develops, and and so she began to take on a greater and greater role. Was it challenging to put the research down and actually begin to write the fiction? Because it's so easy to just get trapped in research. And I right. don't mean that in a bad way, but, you know, no, it's, no, it's I, so I, interesting. Ab- absolutely. And, and I think that it, it's, it certainly was challenging. And, and I found that, especially over the course of the book, my strategy changed. This is my third book, and so I, I still haven't quite figured out how to do this. And I certainly had different approaches to writing a novel back when I began this than I did later. And so, you know, I would do a lot of reading and then I'd start writing something and then I'd learn that maybe that was not the kind of path that I wanted to go down. And so I'd chuck that research out and um, eventually I reached kind of equilibrium, although I'd always, there'd always be this tension between uh, how much more reading should I be doing, how much more research should I be doing versus how much of the story um, should, I, should I be telling. You know, central to the book also is the psychological damage of the war and Back then, they called it shell shock. And I wonder, how new a phenomenon was this? Was this something that really came out of World War I? Very much so. So I mean, for time immemorial, people have recognized that the people experience psychological distress after calamities um, and after either having something terrible happen to them or almost having something terrible happening to them. And 
There's some medical literature on this during the Civil War and afterwards, particularly around uh, industrial accidents or transportation accidents. But really, this particular syndrome, which would eventually become known as shell shock, was unheard of in this form. And so when I say shell shock, I should add that the typical shell shock patient actually looks surprisingly different from the typical patient who would be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder today. The words are sometimes used interchangeably, but common symptoms of shell shock as it appeared in World War I would be, for instance, um, unexplained paralysis, um, trembling, headaches, stutters, amnesia, and then also uh, symptoms that we would more associate with psychological illness today, depression, anxiety, hallucination. Now, at the time, there was a group of patients who did experience this mix of psychological and neurological symptoms. They were primarily women who were diagnosed with uh, what was then called hysteria or grand hysteria, different kinds of hysteria, and we use the word more broadly today, but was highly studied at the end of the 19th century, but really studied among, among women. And so, in fact, when people proposed that men could also have hysteria, this idea was, was thought to be absurd. And then all of a sudden, World War I comes about, and all of a sudden there occurred this epidemic among men exhibiting these symptoms that, that had previously been recognized in women. So it completely took medical authorities by surprise. Both sides sent medical expeditions to frontline hospitals at the very early start of the war. That's when the world shell shock comes about. So the first cases are identified right at the beginning of the war. And there was a lot of debate as to whether or not these symptoms were due to physical traumatic injury caused by these new kinds of bomb blasts the soldiers were experiencing, or the weather was due to a particular kind of, of psychological trauma. And how was it typically treated? Uh, as you can imagine, for these armies that might have 10, 20 percent, sometimes higher rates of shell shock after a confrontation, trying to fix it was a very urgent problem for them. But like today, treating psychological illness takes a long time. And so all sorts of experimental techniques were employed. I think at first they seemed sort of well-intentioned, so kinds of physical therapy, um, getting people to reuse limbs that had become psychologically paralyzed so that they could be taught to reuse them. But then one feels from reading this literature that a kind of impatience growing among the medical establishment as well as in the army who really want to get these men out to the front a lot of these forms of treatment begin to cross over into coercion. This wasn't the only form of treatment by any means, so people were ex experimenting with hypnosis, which was uh, reasonably effective, I think, um, at the time, and then also forms of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. The challenge always being that there weren't enough practitioners to take care of, of so many victims. I'm curious, remind me where you were in your professional career when you started this book? It's your third book, so I sort of know where you were in terms of your literary career, your medical career. I had started thinking about it right at the end of medical school, um, like around back in back in 2004, which is which is when I graduated. And then I began it, and then didn't feel like the idea was fully ready to write about. And so then I went back to the second novel that I had started, which was this, a book called A Far Country because I was sort of so engaged in writing that I ended up taking time off from medicine. And so I'd finished medical school, but I hadn't started residency yet. I finished the second book then, and then began this third one. Each year, I said, this is going to be the year I'm going to return to medicine. 
this is the year I'm going to apply to residency. And I kept on putting it off until 2011 when I went to residency in psychiatry and kept on working on the book, although it was harder then, um, of course. And so it took, I guess, since the book came out in 2018, it took another six, seven years after that for it to be completed. Even when you were working as a resident in psychiatry, did you continue to try to work on the book every day, or residency is hard? Residency is hard. So during residency, I really didn't write very much at all. There were periods of time where I felt that I might have an idea that would come or a possible solution to a problem I felt I had encountered. And and so I would really try then to write over the weekends or write over vacations. But it was difficult, which which is why it took so long. So I certainly didn't write every day. I would have thought medical school would have kept you too busy to write. I think in medical school, when I began, I was able to write much more regularly. It's very different because as a medical student, one's trying to learn, but ultimately at the end of the day, there are other people who are making the decisions. And in residency, it felt very, very different. It felt like that the writing was competing with, like reading for the patients I was taking care of. And, and, and so it was a much more difficult thing to find time to do. I'm wondering what drew you both to literature and to medicine and what you get from one that you don't get from the other. And now I've found that they complement each other in wonderful ways. There have been times when I feel like the two careers have run in parallel, but a lot of times it's been a little bit more serial. So I'd, I write for some time, and then I did training for some time, and then I went back to writing. I think now I'm, I'm at a point where uh, I'm not changing my career much. I'm done with my training, and so there's sort of equilibrium has, has developed. There are ways in which they interfere with each other, but I find them to be very complementary. I mean, First of all, I, I'm a psychiatrist, and so really all medical professions are going to be attentive, should be attentive to the social and the familial and the environmental world that a, that a patient comes from. But for psychiatry, it's central. And so the concerns that a psychiatrist has in a, treating a patient are in some ways the concerns that a novelist would have in, in constructing a character. That's this, this kind of deep curiosity about where the person comes from and what it is in their life that could have created a person who, the, who, who they've become, um, both their strength and, and the things that they're, that they're suffering from. And so I think that there's a process of deep inquiry that feels very similar between the two fields. I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but it's making of sense of somebody's story. Right. It's, it's making sense of somebody's story for, to, different, to different ends, right? right? So, and, the, and this is where I feel like sometimes they're not quite as complementary as they seem on the surface, and that ultimately, as a psychiatrist, there is a point in which I'm, I'm trying to kind of wrap up an explanation, or I'm trying to tie things together, or I'm trying to create something cohesive or help somebody create a kind of coherent narrative about, about their lives. Whereas I think in fiction, explaining how a person has come to be um, doesn't make for good fiction, that the mystery has to be preserved. I think that's, th- that's a tension that, that sometimes I, I grapple with. You know, I know what I get from books as a reader of them, but I'm, I'm very curious about what you get from books as a writer of them. And I'm talking about the books that you write. I feel like that's a question I still ask myself, like, why do this? I don't have a great answer to it. I, like, I think that there are manifest reasons to do it. Like, there's... There's a joy in storytelling, and there are times that I feel like it's important, and there's a, there's a joy in playing with language and discovering and imagining people. I think that those are all there. I think that, that there's also something else. 
that is a little bit of a mystery, but maybe like, maybe the kind of mystery I don't necessarily want to explain. Oh, um, I guess that. That like for some reason I do this, and and why this is something that I want to do, you know, why I want to spend so much time by myself, why I want to spend so much time writing something that I'm then gonna tear up, is strange to me. But it's there, and and it, at this point it seems to be a part of me. It's almost like this other part of me that I haven't quite figured out. Fourteen years is a long time. How did you keep going? Because I, I understand there were times you took off for, for your residency, but that's still a long time to live with a book in process. It was a, it was a long time, and there were certainly periods during that time where I, doing, where I was doing other things, writing short stories. I have a collection of short stories that are going to come out this spring, and so most of them were written during this period of time. But most of the time that I spent writing this book was spent writing something and throwing it away. I made a lot of mistakes, and... I think, in retrospect, had I known it was going to take so long, I'm not totally certain I would have done it. I'm happy with the book. I like being with these with these characters, but it but it did take up a lot of time, and it's quite painful to to get rid of so much of something that that I've written. I think on the bright side, or this is what I sort of tell myself, and that is that it was a period of a lot of learning. So each one of those drafts, at least I tell myself, hopefully, wasn't for nothing. That there was something learned. And that, you know, now as I begin to write something new, I do feel like some of the lessons from this book, um, you know, hopefully I've learned from. You also received an NEA Lit Fellowship in 2014. Did you use the grant for The Winter Soldier or was it for another project? Right. So that was actually during a period of time when I had put the book aside and the the NEA Fellowship was for the book of short stories, which is going to come out in, um, in May of next year. There are nine stories now. I think there was probably four or five of them at that point. And I remain deeply appreciative for the for the fellowship. I mean, that was, you know, particularly at that time when I was in a way sort of recalibrating what I was going to work on. And, you know, I think that, you know, probably when I got it, right, it was right around then that I, I had a sense of, like, maybe a way to fix the novel. I kind of run into this one gigantic roadblock. But there was this period of time when I was just working on the collection of, of short fiction and did, was it helpful doing both? Yes. So I, I think that um, I think without the short stories, I think I probably would have despaired. You know, there there are moments of joy in the process, and there are difficult moments. And some of the moments of joy come in beginning something new, and finding a particular way of saying something, and and completing something, and sharing it. And um, I think one of the wonderful parts about a short story is that a short story offers that much more immediately that I could think of a person, sort of meet them, get to know them, find the language, and then share it. And it gave me this kind of, these sort of bursts of encouragement while I was also on this long road um, towards the novel. And so now what I'm working on is I've sort of begun a novel and I recognize that it's sort of this long, slow process. But at the same time, over the last couple of months, I've been writing short stories. They complement each other. That, that, that short fiction offers something that, that the longer novel doesn't, and then the longer novel offers something that, that a short story also doesn't provide. Has your reading for pleasure changed? It has. There have been periods of time where I've thought that in some ways the writing has, I don't want to say ruined, but changed forever the way that I read. And I, mean, I think it has, because I'm a note taker, uh, and it's hard as I'm reading not to come across a good sentence and suddenly feel like I need to study this, I need to recognize why it was good, I have to learn from this. And so the text then becomes constantly interrupted by these kinds of 
observations. But there are books. Many, many, many times I'll be reading, and it's so good that I say to myself, you know, like, let it go and just enjoy this, and you can come back and, and look at it and look at it again. But there's always this question of how did they do that? And the wonderful thing about writing is it's there on the page. It's not like starting to be a painter where you can't quite figure out like what paints they mix to create this color. Like it's on the page. Um, now how they came up with it, that's a totally different story maybe. But how a particular effect was created, how a kind of narrative um, rhythm was accomplished, um, how a form of dialogue sort of became so lively, like it's possible to go back and and study it, but I'm constantly asking that question, but it also makes it fun. That's author and physician Daniel Mason. We were talking about his book, The Winter Soldier, which is out in paperback. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. You can subscribe to Artworks wherever you get your podcasts, so please do. And leave us a rating on Apple because it helps people to find us. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.